0: From the newsrooms of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, this is Please Explain. I'm Chris Sapone. It's Tuesday, December 20th. Last week, an ambush-style shooting in Queensland left six people dead, including the shooters and two police. As more information has emerged about the assailants, Gareth, Nathaniel, and Stacey Train, it's become clear that they held conspiratorial views of police, power, and the world. Views like these are becoming more common and are a feature of the Internet. But is the government well-prepared enough to respond to them? And is it taking the threat seriously enough? Today, Foreign Affairs and National Security Correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, Matthew Knott, on the Queensland shooting and what it tells us about conspiracy theory as a motivation for violence. So Matt, there was a shooting last week in Queensland that left six people dead, including the shooters themselves. Since then, the issue of conspiracy theory has come up again and again. Can you talk me through why we're discussing conspiracy theory in relation to this shooting?
1: Yeah, well, this was, of course, such a terrible incident that Australia really woke up to uh, last Tuesday and so confusing, you know, where we wanted to know why uh, people in their homes would start shooting ..at police officers. So at first it was a mystery. But as the days followed, we learned more about the killers and some of the pretty extreme and radical views that they held and this quite disturbing, isolated world that they'd been living in uh, online. Disturbing details are emerging about the armed trio
0: who killed them. One was a conspiracy theorist whose twisted ideas led to six deaths and left a nation united in grief. At first,
1: we learnt it through uh, online postings uh, on message boards and comment threads that Gareth Train, one of the shooters, had been posting on. And we did get a sense from there that he had very extreme views uh, around, for example, that the Port Arthur massacre was staged. Uh, Clear uh, anti-vaccination views were there. In 2021, Gareth Train is believed to have been posting on Australian conspiracy websites in support of anti-government and anti-vaccination vaccination stances. So we will look heavily into the past several months and if not years. And so this immediately set people to thinking, well, what role did these conspiratorial beliefs play in motivating the shootings? And then we learned a lot more on Friday when a tranche of online videos that the trains had made were uncovered at first by Crikey and then other media outlets, including The Herald and Age, have reported on these videos. I spent much of the day watching those 13 now-deleted YouTube videos. The first one posted on the 8th of November, the final one posted on the night the trains carried out, their murderous calculated plot. And I can tell you, it is a deranged, crazed and confused manifesto. But it is also extremely distressing and hurtful. And what they show is a very deep uh, involvement with conspiratorial thinking. We're talking about things like the Great Reset Theory, uh, which has come about in recent years, which holds that the COVID-19 pandemic was essentially a way to undermine capitalism and introduce some form of communism. That's that conspiracy
0: theory that's linked to the sovereign citizens theory. Okay, so the three people that were involved in the shooting, the three assailants, Gareth, Stacey Train, and Nathaniel Train, what actually started them on their path to radicalization, as best as we can tell?
1: Yes, I think from all the content that is coming to light now, we are getting a picture of the pathway that they were on to such an extreme point of view. Gareth and Nathaniel grew up in a fundamentalist Christian household, so very much on the fringes of a Christian thought. But the key factor here does appear to have been the pandemic in terms of accelerating some of the conspiratorial views that they held. All three worked inside the education system where COVID-19 vaccination mandates came in, they were very opposed to vaccine mandates and refused to do it. Stacey had to leave her job because of it. That's how committed they were. So then they were really getting involved in some of these online communities that were very opposed to any kind of COVID restrictions. So as we have seen in other parts of the world, including in America, the pandemic and the government interventions that came into place do seem to have played a very big role here.
0: So the threat of this sort of extremism around radicalization online That's been around for a while. But as you're telling me, and I've heard elsewhere, the pandemic has made a difference. But what is it exactly about the pandemic that has accelerated this trend? So
1: in the past decade, there was a huge focus on radical Islamic terrorism. You know, when we saw ISIS in the Middle East and this issue of foreign fighters returning home to Australia, jihadist terrorism has been the big focus for national security agencies. But in recent years, that threat has been dissipating uh, slightly. You never say it's completely over, but that has been receding uh, because groups like ISIS and al-Qaeda are proving to be much less attractive, much less powerful than they were, whereas ASIO has been saying that they're seeing a significant increase in uh, far-right terrorism and this type of activity online. And it really does seem that the coronavirus pandemic accelerated a lot of this People were not allowed to leave their homes, really, or engage in society for a long time. So people were spending a lot of time on the internet, very isolated. All this government control over so many aspects of our lives that disturbed and unsettled a lot of people and led them down a more extreme path. I spoke to Lydia Killil a few days ago, who's one of the nation's big experts on far-right extremism. What she said was the pandemic had accelerated the sense of urgency for a lot of people, you know, instead of just thinking that they would vent online and complain about things. Some people did feel a need to take things further and it seems, unfortunately, that's what we've seen here. Of course, one of the very disturbing things is that you know we've been coming out of the pandemic this year in terms of the lockdowns, in terms of all the rules. So I think organisations like ASIO were thinking hopefully some of the grievances would start to fade away and that maybe we'd got away during these years without seeing anything like this. But what we're seeing here is that there's a long tail for this type of conspiratorial thinking that just because the lockdowns have ended, uh, some people have really gone down the rabbit hole and they haven't come back out.
0: Now, you've mentioned before the threat of Islamist terrorism, and that that was really the dominant focus of the government and the media in recent years until the pandemic. So, how is that threat different than the threat from far-right extremism or fringe groups? I mean, how do they function differently? Yeah, it's a very
1: different a threat to deal with, and in some ways, uh, more difficult for authorities than the Islamic threat. What you see with including from the postings from the trains in the lead up to These killings, it's not very ideologically consistent. It's a grab bag of grievances from so many different areas. There's not a lot of internal consistency to this thinking. That's the nature of the conspiratorial thinking, whereas it was a lot more ideological and centralized with the threat of Islamic terrorism. We don't really see leaders or organizations in the same way, it's much more loosely connected which in some ways makes these people less of a threat, you know, rather than dealing with militant groups like ISIS. But it's much more unpredictable who is going to be radicalised. What uh, experts do say that most people who post uh, extremist content online, most conspiracy theorists, people who are posting angry messages about lockdowns on message boards, they never do act out their threats, whereas these people have. So it's incredibly hard to predict who is just someone who holds extreme unorthodox views and who is someone who is a national security risk, someone who could potentially kill people.
0: So it sounds like you're saying that the threat is now much more diffuse and and sort of it's harder to to distinguish where it might crop up.
1: Exactly. And very hard to deal with for a democratic society like Australia. This is something that politicians and experts acknowledge is that We believe in the principle of free speech. We believe people should be able to hold wacky views, unorthodox views if they want to. They should be able to criticize governments. The line is drawn at when you're uh, promoting or threatening violence, but in many cases, it doesn't quite reach that
0: threshold. Talking about the government's response and where their focus is on this issue, I feel like there's a sort of a sense of deja vu in that in 2019, there was the Australian citizen who burst into the mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand, and gunned down 51 people. And and immediately afterwards, there was what was called the Christchurch call. So that brought together governments and social media platforms and civil society organizations to try to tackle this threat. What's changed between now and then? I mean, why has the Christchurch call not have captured the sort of activity that we saw last week in Queensland? It
1: still is ongoing since uh, Christchurch. Uh, over 120 governments have signed on to be a part of this initiative, online service providers and civil society groups. And what they've committed to is you know, content moderation policies, really not allowing anything promoting violent extremism on their sites. We saw YouTube, for example, with these videos of the Queensland killers take down the content very quickly but they hadn't been aware that it was up until it was reported by the media. It was interesting to see a French president uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, was visiting the United States recently and he went and met with the new Twitter owner Elon Musk because there's been a lot of uh, worry about uh, what Elon Musk is going to do with Twitter and whether he will essentially allow a free for all there and Macron told him that he absolutely doesn't want Twitter and other social media sites to be become safe havens for violent extremist content. And Musk has committed to abiding by the Christchurch call. But what we're saying is that it's just such a tricky problem to deal with, you know, with dealing with literally uh, billions of people posting on the internet, it can be like a game of whack-a-mole trying to pull it down before it pops back up again.
0: It sounds like you're saying the governments are looking out on this landscape of these social media platforms that just have so much content to sift through. What does the government propose to do now, looking at the situation that we have here in Australia?
1: It is interesting. Even before these attacks, uh, Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill, who has responsibility for uh, national security, she has been talking about these issues and saying that it will be uh, focus for the government. She is looking at uh, reorganizing the Home Affairs Department to focus more on the emerging threats of today. And one of those is far right terrorism and extremism, you know, linked to some of these ideological grievances that we've seen. The work is definitely in an early stage. They have a task force in the Home Affairs Department which is going to focus on protecting democracy. And one of the key elements there is ways to discourage disinformation and misinformation, the sharing of this type of conspiratorial content. But to be honest, the government's still really at early days in terms of how to deal with this. The apparatus, the infrastructure, the expertise is not there in the same way as it was in the days of ISIS and radical Islamic terrorism. I spoke the other day to uh, the head of a parliamentary uh, joint committee on intelligence, a Labor MP, Peter Khalil, which has a lot of oversight over this area. And he said it's going to be a big focus for his committee and that what he wants to do is try and disrupt the pipeline towards extremism at its source. So you need to be trying to monitor this content at a very early stage before waiting until it gets to the point of glorifying terrorism or encouraging it in a very direct Way I think we've seen this issue exposed with some of the laws is that regulation only kicks in when it's very late and perhaps too late, and you need to have a way to intervene earlier. I'd be interested to see what we hear from the government about de initiatives, and for family members, for example, who have someone who has entered down one of these rabbit holes and they're worried about them. Well, what can be done? You know, there's been a huge amount of research and funding put into a de for fundamentalist Islam. What are we going to see on that issue here with far-right extremism?
0: But that feeds right into our own domestic politics in a way, right? Because when you talk about the far-right, it's just a little bit further on the spectrum than what would be more mainstream right position.
1: Yes, and the danger also is that if the government is seen as in any way a persecuting people for their political views or just for holding, you know, a point of view in a democracy, that could potentially radicalise people even more if they feel under threat, if they feel they're being targeted. So it's a very a careful dance that the government has to make here. Matt,
0: thanks so much for your time on this today. Thanks for that, Chris. Today's episode of Please Explain was produced by Debbie Harrington. Please Explain is a production of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. If you enjoy the show and want more of our journalism, subscribe to our newspapers today. It's the best way to support what we do. Search The Age or smh.com.au forward slash subscribe. I'm Chris Sapone. This is Please Explain. Thanks for listening.